So where does the breastplate fit into all of this? I mean, you say that, you know, you have the white stone, you've got the brown stone, you've got the interpreters, but we often hear about this breastplate. Right. What's that about? Right. So it's, it, this one is, a, is really a mystery. I, I swear to you, I've done more research on the breastplate than anything, and I've been left dry. And so that's the best way to start it. Where does its origination come? So these stones that he gets with the gold plates, they come with the breastplate. And those are the three things, the plates, the breastplate, and the Nephite interpreters, uh, Mosiah II's interpreters that are bound together with a metal figure eight. They come together, apparently, right? But the problem is the real first account of this comes in 1839 in Joseph Smith's history after everything's become biblicized. And the only account that you get early on is a reflection from Lucy Mack Smith where she says, I got to hold the breastplate covered in a, in a handkerchief. So it's obviously not that big, right? Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture digging deeper, and having a whole lot of fun, learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. This is Russell Stevenson with LDS Perspectives. We have Dr. Michael McKay here in his office to discuss seer stones in the Latter-day Saint tradition. Good to have you here, Dr. McKay. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, just a little bit of backstory here. I was, um, I was in Africa not long ago. And within many indigenous African uh, theologies, I would say it's more deeply rooted in materiality, right? They tend to put a lot of emphasis on things, right? On items, on soil, on things that you can touch with your hands. And I think it's interesting that within the Latter-day Saint tradition, you also have an element of this in Joseph Smith's seer stones. Yeah, I think one of the things that we really resonate with is those sensorial experiences that we have. We often describe these spiritual experiences where we go to church and we feel these things. Uh, we have these emotions. And largely that too is what you would call a materialist approach to religion, where in reality the, the passing of chemicals across the synapses is, is a physical response to some sort of religious occurrence. And so understanding something like seer stones, where you have a tangible object and a response to that tangible object, could also be compared to our temple experiences, where we, in ritual form, we prepare ourselves physiologically and in our dress, and we, we go there and we have these very powerful experiences, and we express ourselves through actions and a specific kind of religious material culture. Drawing that back into seer stones, uh, once again, we have this, this very brilliant, very interesting way of dealing with material culture. Perhaps not different than something like the Dome of the Rock, like a, a rock that's deeply religious, that has profound influence on several different religious traditions. Fortunately, we have in Mormonism this concept of seer stones that's emerged and become central to the production of much of the foundational religious scripture that's come forth. Now, you just said that this notion of seer stones has emerged, which implies that we have not always acknowledged this to be part of our narrative. Why has that changed? I wonder if it's pockets of knowledge. In part of the introduction to this book, we try to approach this idea like asking, have we always known about the seer stones? And it's very rich in the literature. If you go through 
from Joseph Smith's time all the way until today. It's found in even some of the most conservative literature. So it's been there. There's just been a tendency to avoid it in some of the more pedagogical situations where we're trying to emphasize the spiritual aspects of church. And I, I think it's possible, you know, the, the relationship between uh, science and religion, the concept of secularism in our society has distanced us from talking about it more discreetly. But it's always been there. There's been pockets. B.H. Roberts was obsessed with the topic. He saw the seer stones. He wrote about them in public venues. You have very conservative individuals in the 70s and the 80s who are writing about seer stones. You also have Enzyme articles in 1998, for example. Uh, You have publications now through the Joseph Smith papers. It's in the literature, and to some extent, it's about us uh, speaking about them more publicly. And I think the emergence of this, that which, I, which I mentioned, came through the Joseph Smith Papers Project, serious reflection on stuff that's already been written. To make a pun, it is an old hat. And waka waka. <laughs> it's, it's quite literally been something that people have been dealing with for a long time. So in some ways, the work that I've been doing is rehashing some really good work and giving it a new flair and making it a more public idea in which we begin to discuss seer stones as part of sacred ritual, start considering them as part of our religious tradition. You know, how about you walk us through you know, some of the uh, earliest documentation showing us that Joseph Smith used a seer stone, like you know, who was writing about it, who was observing it, and what kind of meaning did they ascribe to it? So the earliest use of seer stones is related with his burned-over district culture. And so the earliest source that we have is actually a reflection. It's a copy of a document, but it's an 1826 document where Joseph Smith actually is charged with a misdemeanor for trying to deceive a guy who's paying him. In that record, you have Joseph Smith describing his seer stone and actually describing some regret between the the mixed cultures that have come along with the seer stones. And so you get this emergence with Joseph Smith participating. One of the points the book makes is all of Joseph's neighbors supposedly have seer stones also. It's it's a condensed, very localized culture, though it spreads across the United States, and money digging is a European tradition also, and the esotericism that's often connected with, with seer stones is a European and American culture. It also seems rather agrarian, right? It tends to be more popular in agrarian societies rather than urban societies. Yeah, so so part of it's connected with finding water. Others parts have connected with finding treasure and buried items, lost items come together. There's a very religious element to see money digging or this magic culture of seer stones or divining rods to tease them apart from religious actions, from the revivalism that's happening, or even just the Christian practices within the day uh, would be a mistake. These are things that are overlapping and dependent upon each other and attaching the concept of of the divine nature of America, the land that houses some of these buried treasures and manifests destiny. Uh, As soon as the first person reached America, they automatically thought Israelites were there, uh, who were the ones that populated this continent. And so you mix these, these several cultures together 
uh, this very religious revival culture in the burned over district with a magic culture connected to esotericism and religion. And what you get is a ripe environment for Joseph Smith to transform that environment into something that becomes very religious to him and eventually develops into Mormonism. But in that case, we use the, the term transform very particularly. We borrowed from Bushman's emphasis that Joseph Smith has a green thumb for religion. He takes things like if you had a peach pit and you plant a peach pit in the ground, Joseph Smith would make that peach pit grow into this massive religious oak something very distinctly different that is transformed and grown, but very distinctly influenced by his culture, but religiously changed and transformed into something very Mormon. And it seems that within Western discourse, both at the time as well as in the 21st century, we're not comfortable with considering these kinds of traditions, you know, using serosones and the like, as being religious, right? We, we tend to call it, you know, either a, you know, quote-unquote superstition or, you know, maybe folklore, or sometimes even magic. Why do you think that is? You mentioned something about the rise of secularism. That's a massive question. And, in and unfairly ways, I, so, I, yes. I'm probably not prepared to answer that uh, distinctly. There's probably a whole book in that very question. And I try to stick more carefully to the material culture of the seer stones in this book, particularly. But there is a change. Secularism that comes in and erases the memory of the importance of esotericism, of magic, of these cultures that are ingrained. At the time, uh, even within science, they have these unforeseen forces. Gravity is one of them. Uh, magnetism is one of them. You know, magnetism is one of the, uh, and hypnotism are one of the first things that doctors used to stop the pain when the surgeon's doing his work. And these are unforeseen forces. They're binding together uh, magnetism and electricity at this point in, in America and science. And so uh, there's a great overlap in there. The distinct uh, division between those practices of magic or things that are uncalculable is very much a 20th century action where science is distinctly, where the division between those are extremely important. And it's a new definition of what reality is, which doesn't exist in 1830 or the 1820s. You know, and I'm thinking right now of a, you know, Max Weber's you know, disenchantment thesis, right? You know, letting go of the gods. No, no longer, there's no longer a belief in you know, supernatural forces governing our lives, but rather things are measurable, things are calculable. I would argue that this concept of calculating is, is probably the division between religion and, and other kinds of knowledge. I particularly don't want my religion to be calculated. I don't need a quantification of my religion. This kind of draws it back in. What I want out of it is, is the mysterious. I want the magisterium. I want to go back to the concept of the miraculous, the concept of something of the sublime. I want to gaze up and, and find the sublime in God. And the sublime is what drives me rather than the calculable. In my estimation, that's what religion is. And it's what you find in Joseph's interaction with the material culture, with uh, seer stones in particular. He's saying, you either grasp the miracle in the Book of Mormon or you don't get it. Now, the Moroni's promise is, is just draped with that kind of promise is 
You have to have this powerful internal experience for you to know that this book is true because I gave the plates back. I gave them back and you can examine them and it's almost a requirement. The death of the plates brings forth the value of the text and the value of the text can only be known through the glowing words on the stone. This is the stuff of religion. This is the stuff of the miraculous that I think Joseph offers And that is his religious genius. It isn't necessarily his brilliance in typing out a a well-worded letter or or whatever it may be. I see a really interesting uh, tension here. You know, you're talking about religion being about the sublime, right? About the transcendent. And yet you're finding transcendent things in very ordinary things. You know, things that Joseph Smith literally found you know, while he was digging a well, right? right? I mean, that's something that any of us could do. Right. So Steve Harper wrote this wonderful article, and it's about this uh, rationalism that exists then, this rationalism that emerged in this post-Enlightenment period, where individuals like the Whitneys or the Campbellites that joined the Mormon religion, these are people who have reached a point in their life where they're looking for evidences, and they're also looking for the New Testament revivalism. They want the miracle to be in their life, and they actually see those as a rational reason to believe and so something like, just like any, an archaeologist digging into the earth like Cuvier or any of these archaeologists who are finding lost bones, they're finding pieces of Diplodocus and dinosaurs, and they're giving evidence of an ancient world. Uh, these early Christians that are seeing Joseph Smith with a seer stone and buried treasure or artifacts from an ancient world see them as evidence, and they borrow from that evidence to build a belief system. So you have these rationalists who are also seeking after the miraculous, and the seer stone is an example that binds those two together, the miraculous made material. And so as materialists, they see and they want this to be the miracle. The process that is described by those who watch him is a fully materialist construct where they're stopping and they're saying, the materialism is what makes this immovable. He puts it in a hat. He can't see other books. The stone in the hat delivers the message and nothing else. This is the ultimate Mormon apology for the miraculousness of the stones. Emma uses it. David Whitmer uses it. Some people can see it as a trope, but ultimately they saw it as experiential rationalists, as the greatest example of the miracles that are flowing forth from Joseph Smith. And it begins, Pomeroy Tucker, who's a local, he says, it is, the seer stone is the acorn of the Mormon oak. And as the acorn of the Mormon oak He plants that acorn and it creates the oak, is his metaphor. And Joseph Smith believes that too. How is the scripture that's being produced not connected to this beautiful, ritualistic, material culture? It is the miracle, and it is the evidence of uh, a rationalist also. One conversation the Latter-day Saints have been having in regards to the stones, especially as of late, is... You know, exactly how we should see the stones today. Now, within Christian traditions of various kinds, you know, there is a strong sense of, of relics, right? Whether you're talking about, you know, Peter's finger or, you know, the handkerchief owned by Paul, that these things actually have a spirituality infused in them in a very real way. So should we see the stones as being 
inherently spiritual or was it something that maybe resonated with what Joseph expected to be spiritual then you know God used whatever tools was in front of him yeah so this is central to this question this has been answered by Mark Asher's McGee he's one of the central figures in in this scholarship probably the central I would argue and one of the things he really dug at was pun intended I guess again um, what he really dug at was was the power in Joseph or was it in the stone and, and regardless of what you, I mean, there's a debatable question there, and I think Mark's got the very best answer. But when you think about this, like this is central to the question. If there wasn't, let's just say the words appeared on the stone or the words appeared in Joseph's mind, which seemed to his senses to be on the stone, one or the other. Like this is a theoretical question that you and I can't really answer. But it has to be a question because it gives the value of the stone and the value of the seer which seems to be attempted in both sides. They want, Joseph wants both of them to be relevant. But in our culture, like this is the one point this my book makes that I think is extremely important that adds to all this other wonderful literature, is this stone in particular, the culture embraces it. Others find their own stones. Those that Joseph give their stones to preserve them. They value them. So Joseph, when, when he dies, his stones end up in the, the hands of Brigham Young and the next prophet and the next prophet. One of the stones is dedicated or consecrated on the altars of the temple. And so regardless of whether it was appearing on the stone, Mormon culture has enlivened it with something sacred and valuable. So by passing it from one to the other, it then identifies the authority that rests in the hands of these brethren who become presidents of the church. And it's preserved, it's placed in the presidency's vault. It emerges, in the Brownstone case, it emerges as a valuable demonstration of the validity and the efficaciousness of the Joseph Smith papers. Like, this is the stuff of religion once again, and it's our culture that begins to do this. So the primary purpose of this book too, not only the material culture, is to say, how does this material culture actually create a theology in Mormonism? And before Joseph Smith dies, regardless of how the stone works or how it enlivens the seer, there is a theology that's created before Joseph dies. So based on your reading of the subject, how have our manuals treated the existence of the seer stone? There's actually more in the manuals than you would think. So you have a couple of Enzyme articles from uh, apostles, um, and, and so those read like manuals and are used in the manuals. But there's also a few other pieces that emerge. Most of them are in the 70s. From the 80s onwards, it seems like they're cut out of the primary manuals. But earlier manuals you have mention. You also have them mentioned in Mormon doctrine, for example. It's created some great folklore. In Mormon doctrine, he says, oh yeah, the Urimum Thummim is in the first presidency's vault, right? Which, I mean, I remember on my mission thinking that was the coolest thing I've ever heard. The place that they emerge is usually with the translation of the Book of Mormon, and they're called the Urim and Thummim. And they're also depicted, which is a lot of my work has been really trying to sculpt uh, a new image of what the translation is largely through Tony Sweat's artwork, which I think he's done wonderful. This is a, all of his pieces really add something to this debate. 
And the reason those are so important, as Tony demonstrated in his research in the back of From Darkness Unto Light, is that this is the teaching method for the church when it comes to seer stones, a depiction of Joseph either not even using the Urimum Thummim and putting his finger on the plates, or when he has them, he looks strangely and they're connected to the breastplate. By pictures and paintings, the church commissions and never gives them any identification of the historicity of what's happening or the historical background of what's happening. The church's manuals have left it out of the story outside of the pictures, leaving people to make their own conclusions and avoid directly addressing the concept of seer stones. I don't think this is going to be the case any longer. I I think even the seminary manual, if I remember right, mentions it. and, And it's such a broad understood topic that this isn't the case anymore. And there's a point that you glanced on. We're talking about the seer stone versus the Yerman Thummim and the degree to which they're separate things, the degree to which the word Yerman Thummim can be used to describe the seer stone. How about you unpack that for us? So some of the things in uh, um, Joseph Smith's seer stones is we identify all of the seer stones. So we try to legitimize or delegitimize, if the historical sources suggest that way, what Joseph Smith is actually using. And so the concept of Urimum Thummim comes as Joseph Smith, it seems, we don't have direct evidence for this, but it seems that it comes straight through his translation of the Bible. So from 1830 to 1833, he's translating the Bible. He's well aware of these two stones known as Urim and Thummim that are held within the breastplate of the ephod of the high priest. This Urim of Thummim is a great example of what he's doing. Money digging culture is referencing Urim of Thummim all the time. There is already an overlap of that, but Joseph seems to use the terminology of stones or peep stones and interpreters through the Book of Mormon, and this terminology becomes biblicized, and it takes on, like, just changing the name of something seems very superfluous to what's going on, but that isn't. These, these naming of these stones is extremely relevant If you take a peep stone that Joseph dug from the ground and you begin calling it a Urimum Thummim, it indicates a whole new power structure. It indicates a whole new meaning and a whole new function. It's a transformative act. It's absolutely transformative. And that transformative act begins to relabel how people begin to understand it. They begin to see, well, how would the Urimum Thummim function? Is this actually functioning like dice, which the Urimum Thummim functions to some extent, or, or is argued to function to some extent? And is this a revelatory thing where the Urimum Thummim's held close to the breastplate or the breast of a, of a seer and the revelation flows to his mind? All of these are relevant for understanding how Joseph Smith is making sense of it, but also who those who are not close to the seer stones begin to give relevance and meaning and function to the seer stones. The division between that is deeply important. To be very clear to your listeners, Joseph never owned the Urim and Thummim. There's a, an appendix item, uh, Nick Frederick, who, who did a wonderful, he gathered all the literature and put together um, the function of the Old Testament Urim and Thummim and how it related. This is important to know that he didn't own it. He only owned peep stones and the Book of Mormon interpreters. That being said, we have to then begin to tease out 
which were which. Mark Asher's McGee began this work, and we compiled some of what he did and tried to add to to his wonderful work to sort through when is he talking about the brown stone? When is he talking about his white stone? When is he talking about the interpreters? Because all three of those are mentioned as Urim and Thummim. This makes the task of sorting through the material culture distinctively almost impossible at times, and it requires some speculation, which makes the topic even more historically interesting. Right, fascinating, engaging, right? Yeah, and then trying to define what stone is doing what. We actually find some evidence that shows Joseph valued his white stone more than his brown stone. This is something that I think will be a big addition to the field. Something that, once again, we're always standing on the shoulders of Mark. He, he writes the, the forward to the book appropriately. That'll be a, a nice thing for people to search through and find. So where does the breastplate fit into all of this? I mean, you say that, you know, you have the white stone, you've got the brown stone, you've got the interpreters, but we often hear about this breastplate. Right. What's that about? Right. So, it's it, this one is a, is really a mystery. I I swear to you, I've done more research on the breastplate than anything, and I've been left dry. And so that's the best way to start it. Where does its origination come? So these stones that he gets with the gold plates, they come with the breastplate, and those are the three things: the plates, the breastplate, and the Nephite interpreters, uh, Mosiah the Second's interpreters that are bound together with a metal figure eight. They come together apparently, right? But the problem is the real first account of this comes in 1839 in Joseph Smith's history after everything's become biblicized. And the only account that you get early on is a reflection from Lucy Mack Smith where she says, I got to hold the breastplate covered in a, in a handkerchief. So it's obviously not that big, right? But wasn't that their interpreters though? I thought that she was referring to that the too. interpreters. That okay. too. So you have this issue where the breastplate only comes out later. So you get these reminiscent descriptions of the breastplate and the breastplate, uh, William Smith is the best full account of it. And he does it way late in life. And he's clearly copying Urimum Thummim tropes. He's trying to connect this very much to a biblicized narrative. And so what he's saying, uh, and, and largely William Smith is usually hard to trust anyways. He's a young teenager at this, and when Joseph first gets it, he probably doesn't know, he probably doesn't remember right. But that being said, the narrative matters too, because this is what the Mormons believe. They've biblicized it, it becomes important to them. But once again, does Joseph use the breastplate? Not according to the scribes who watch him do it. It was apparently too big. They never saw it. Emma didn't see it. Martin Harris didn't see it. Oliver Cowdery didn't see it. So the use of the, of the, of the breastplate didn't happen. Did he have it? I don't know. Joseph Smith's history says that he does. So the author of Joseph Smith's history, the one who actually writes the words on the page. Like Mulholland, right? Yeah. So James Mulholland is his name. Is he actually creating the story and Joseph approving it? So if you're taking Joseph Smith's history at face value, he had it, but he did not use it. Now, that being said, that's, that's what we can reconstruct through the historical sources. And he seems not to use it. If you use William Smith, he has it. He uses it. There's this little lever that comes down and he connects the spectacle-like Mosiah II interpreters 
to that little lever, and it almost looks like he gazes through them, which is an anti-narrative to the rest of the historical sources. And so the breastplate, what a dilemma. I don't know. The only breastplate mentioned in the Book of Mormon is not connected with interpreters. It's connected with these breastplates and and the discovery of the people of Limhi. So here you have this dilemma. Now, I'm not going to sort it out unless we have evidence to sort it out. And, and that's kind of the method the book goes at, too, is we're going to look at some of the evidence. And unfortunately, the evidence doesn't allow us to conclude in all places. And this is one of them. One of the history's mysteries of Mormonism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with this in mind, you know, maybe let's start taking more of a bird's eye view at the use of the seer stone up. Uh, and, you know, other elements of the material culture in which Joseph Smith lived. What are the theological implications? Okay, so, so this is one of the things that the book tries to do. As we traced the material culture, the passing of one stone to the next person, Joseph's value of it, the next prophet's value of the seer stone, there's something meaningful just in that. So just passing the seer stone creates that value and why? This is the ultimate question. And I think the recent scholarship on this, so building from, for example, Quinn's research, building from Mark Asher's McGee's research, building from Bushman's research, building from that and launching it into a larger narrative with the Joseph Smith papers, and hopefully some of my work has helped just recently. We have normalize this to some extent. There'll still be some that don't know it, but we've, we've created an environment of normalization. And now with that, when we can actually value the fact that they used to value it, this is now a time where we ask, in what way? In what religious way were these important to them and why are they important to us? So this is what I call, you know, theologizing the seer stones. So begin to make meaning of them and finding what meaning they made of them. Now, the book actually argues that Joseph Smith creates a real theology. I think the question you really have to ask here is why have we not theologized it first? This is the first question. Why haven't we given it meaning, real religious meaning until now? And the reason for that is largely one of the predominant descriptions or apologetic answers to this is the didactic or the learning model of the seer stone. So you've heard this before. Joseph had a seer stone that he got from his culture, and from that culture, he eventually learned how to get real revelation. He had to use something from his culture to learn to be... As a kind of crutch, as Orson Pratt described. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Mark Asher's McGee's dissertation actually follows some of this didactic model, but he does it in a very sophisticated way that isn't apologetic. He actually demonstrates that in seer culture, there's a development from a, a, a rod to a dark stone up to a white stone and eventually ending with a crystal. Now, this is the material culture of advancement that he's done very well with. Now, what goes beyond this is saying Joseph couldn't function and devaluing previous seer stones to say pure inspirational revelation is more valuable than seeing words on a stone. He's a better prophet because of this. The implications of this is to say, if the didactic model is true, is to say the most valuable piece of scripture in Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, was in fact created in a lesser form of revelation with the seer stones. 
Well, that I think to most people that strikes you as blasphemy. Yet many have perpetuated this to show, uh, even in the Enzyme article uh, that they wrote recently that showed the seer stone, they made this statement, for example, quoting Pratt to say, well, when Joseph did the, the Bible translation, he told Pratt, I don't need a seer stone. But that neglects the valuable source where, where an individual talked to Joseph and he said, Joseph used the seer stone in the beginning of the Bible translation. He saw in a panoramic or all-seeing vision everything that happened in the Bible. And by doing so, he saw that up front and then read through every verse of the Bible and made changes according to what he saw, right? And so it totally ignores this to maintain a didactic model of the seer stones. What this also does is allows us to religiously devalue the use and possession of seer stones, which is not reflected in the passing of seer stones from Joseph to the current presidency of the church. The fact that Joseph Smith passed his on to somebody else and they pass it on to somebody else, it tells us that they're valuable, right? They yeah. mean something, and they, we shouldn't just discard them as yeah. you know, relics of a, of a backwards past. Right, right. So, so in particular, like uh, Brant Gardner's work, which has added numerous additions to this debate, in particular, he makes a brilliant argument that asks the question, so are the, are the inscriptions on the plates actually what comes out on the paper? Which has pushed us forward in, in our advancements much further. But on the other side, he maintains an idea that the didactic model is right. So by doing so, we've kind of halted ourselves in valuing them ourselves. So the other argument that the didactic model supporters have to uh, include is that Joseph didn't use his seer stones after the Book of Mormon. So I've named one example where we have evidence that he has the Bible translation. In addition to that, you have a Parley P. Pratt claiming that Joseph Smith translated the, the Book of Abraham with the seer stones. There's also an 1835 local newspaper that says Joseph trans is translating the book of Abraham from papyri using his seer stone, right? In addition to that, 1836, I mean, this is a reduced use of seer stones, right? But in addition to that, 1836, he gives Newell K. Whitney his patriarchal blessing with his white seer stone. And so you, you get to his more expanded cosmological period in Nauvoo, and you see him connecting seer stones with a very distinct concept of what the cosmology of God is, right? So he's got several speeches, his mysteries of godliness relating to the temple, and also his discussion with Orison Hyde, which later becomes DNC 130. In DNC 130, it says, every person who will go to the celestial kingdom, will receive a white stone with a new name on it. Now, this concept of a new name is past. He says you will be able to see with your seer stone all of the past worlds that have been created. And it's part of your understanding, part of the godliness that is created there to know past, present, and future. That is the state of godliness in the celestial kingdom. DNC 130 says it is essential that you have a seer stone in exaltation. So 
Once again, to say that we don't value the seer stone, this is the opposite of the didactic model. That's to deny the very nature of revelations received and canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants. And Joseph Smith's perpetuation of godliness. Like, he's not arguing that God is all-powerful. He's arguing God is all-knowledgeable, which makes him all-powerful. That's a different situation. And he's saying part of this knowledge comes through, like he told Joseph Knight Sr. when he first gets those Mosiah the second stones, he says, I can see anything. In 1843, he says, I can see anything, and so will you when you possess a stone with your new name on it, as DNC 130 says, and you will obtain exaltation be in the celestial kingdom. So this theology, this is just an introduction to the theology. This is going to expand far beyond this. I know uh, Sam Brown is, is exploring much of this element, and his new book on translation will perpetuate this in this direction, which will give us, once again, an, an even further expansion of the value of the theology connected back to the material culture of seer stones. You're looking at like this volcano about to explode, and I think it's our new ability to look at the material culture of seer stones more religiously. And, and I think probably once Sam comes out with his book, it'll be the book of all books where you're like, okay, why do I need to know the development? I'm just looking at the, the fully developed side. And so that's the direction we're headed in. This book is intended to be part of a springboard to insinuate that if we are to understand seer stones and the material culture of Mormonism, we are going to have to give answers that are theological. We're going to have to take it more serious than just describing what's in the historical documents. We are going to have to theologize and figure out what this really means rather than what someone was describing it to be. Your books, From Darkness into Light and Joseph Smith's Seer Stones, have taken us leaps and bounds towards understanding those questions. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. McKay. Thank you. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. You, know, you, you don't even have enough people for a good headman in a village 50 years after you bring over the 30 people that we might guess were there. And then for someone to assume that because 30 people came over that they must have not only contributed their DNA in ways that were going to be preserved, but that they would contribute all of their culture and all of their language and we should find this. This is 30 people in a place where we happen to know that there were thousands, there were millions of people here. And so these were you know, more than a drop in the bucket. They were, they were a piece of a drop of a small thing in a really big bucket. Uh, so it's, it's not surprising that there are a lot of things that weren't there. Uh, we do have, by the way, evidence with the Kennewick man of a genetic type where all of the history of that genetic type that we know came into the Americas has totally disappeared. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.